the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday, May 29th edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts here to spend some time with you today as we do each and every Monday through Friday, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. On today's program, a bit of a departure from the usual fare as we pause to pay tribute to a very dear brother in Christ, a man considered to be one of the leading Christian apologists of the 20th and 21st centuries, Ravi Zacharias, a man who many consider to be most adept at using reason to defend the faith, has passed away. Ravi Zacharias was 74 years old. He fought a year-long battle with cancer, passing away at his home in Atlanta on May 19th. Ravi Zacharias was an evangelist, a best-selling author, but most critically, an important voice for the gospel by making a rational argument for the existence of God and vigorously defending the faith against atheists, relativists, and any other challengers. Ravi Zacharias undoubtedly one of the most incredible apologetics teachers of our lifetime. His ministry motto was, Helping the thinker believe, helping the believer think. On today's edition of Lifeline, we present the last and final sermon that Ravi Zacharias ever preached. He titles this sermon, Marching to a Different Drummer. Here now is Ravi Zacharias. Some years ago, I was flying through Newark to get back to Atlanta, and I'd come from somewhere overseas, I think it was Bangkok, and I landed in Newark. I always say after those long flights, the only good news is that you look like your passport picture, and the immigration (laughs) officer recognizes you right away. So I'd gone through that and went to the gate where the flight was to leave for Atlanta, but it showed a different city. And so I tapped the lady on the shoulder sitting at the edge. I said, excuse me, is the flight going to Atlanta or is it going where the marquee says it's going? She said, oh, no, it's going to Atlanta. I said, that's good. So I turned around to get myself a cup of coffee and I heard the patter of feet behind me. And it was the same lady and she tapped me on the shoulder. She said, excuse me, are you Ravi Zacharias? I said, I'm afraid so. She said, that's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I didn't think you had questions as well. Uh, That really did happen. I don't have an imagination to make up something like that. But people have these uh, ideas that just because you're in Christian apologetics, you know, you don't think things through or you don't ask questions. You're like a answering machine. You put in the right coin and the right answer comes out. Uh, that's not the way it works. I was on a television program this morning and uh, they were 
answering, asking a question about prayer. How come some prayers are answered and some prayers are not answered? And you're given about two minutes in which to give the answer. Uh, that's about, unfortunately, what happens sometimes for very profound and elaborate questions. We like very simple, poignant answers and say, that checks that one off. It doesn't work that way. Life itself is a pursuit of one question after another. From the time we are little children, we start asking. In fact, my mother once said to me, where do you come up with all these questions? Uh, And we've got grandkids now who are asking all kinds of questions. Life is a process of finding answers, both propositional and relational. Many of the answers are oftentimes not in propositions, although propositional answers have to conform to reality in the way you are raising the questions. But relationships often bring the context within which those questions are often answered. And that's why sometimes even somebody like Job, who raised question after question after question, and he had three horrible friends who came, and uh, the best time in that relationship was when they had said absolutely nothing. That's why today, if you go all over the world, chances are you'll never find anybody named Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zohar. Actually, I have met one Bildad, but I don't know what his mother was thinking when she called him Bildad. But it was fascinating how at the end of it all, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I shall see him in my flesh. That relationship, that relationship which provided so much more for him than what the three boys were trying to tell him in very, very simplistic answers. People often ask me a question, do you, when do you you get time to read or to think? If you fly as often as I do, you get a lot of time to read and to think. And you are oftentimes on those long hauls pondering a lot of things. Sometimes those 14, 15 hour flights, when you feel you should have had a couple of birthdays en route, you just think of a lot of things. And one day I was thinking, one flight I was thinking, Is it possible, now this may surprise you, is it possible to have a real close walk with God and be totally fulfilled at the same time? Now you may think the answer is readily obvious and it ought to be, but on the other hand, why then do we wander away from that path? If that total fulfillment is already there, why do we take off to take off on these boulevards or other exploits? They say stolen waters can be sweet or whatever. We think there is something on the other side that we have not yet really experienced. So the question often is, what does a person who truly walks with God really look like? I want to help answer that question, but first let me answer it in a lighthearted way. This little guy. Uh, wanted a blue bicycle, and he didn't know how to really pray for it. So he started watching Christian television programs. And he watched one of these high church programs, and he learned how to pray from that. And so at night, he went to bed, and he said, Eternal and everlasting Father, if it is in your perfect plan for me to have a blue and white a silver bicycle, may it be delivered to me tomorrow morning world without end 
Amen. And in the morning he went out and there was no bicycle. So he decided he'd watch another Christian program. So that night he went to bed and he said, Jesus, I declare my need for a bicycle. And I pray that it'll be silver and blue and here by 5.30 in the morning. And he went out in the morning, looked out, there was no bicycle again. So the next morning he's wandering around the house and he sees a statue of Mary in the house. He tucks it under his shirt and he goes outside and hides it in the woods. And he comes back and his mother saw him on his knees saying, Dear Jesus, if you want to see your mother again. I hope I didn't offend you. This may be the last time I'm coming, Carter. I don't know. But you know, if we form our theology, if we form our theology or our worship sometimes by things we watch or things we hear, we may do some horrific things and think we are really following God. And that's why as wonderful as experiences, as powerful as experiences, the word of God reminds us that it is ultimately his word that abides forever. Peter, Peter had one of the most extraordinary experiences that no human eye had ever contained. In fact, if you were to ask me, if you were to take the biblical story, the entire gospel, and had one sermon or one experience with Jesus where he was performing his miracles or giving his message, which would it be? I have a tough time choosing between the walk on the Emmaus road, listening to him connect all the dots of history, or the experience of observing the transfiguration. Because Peter, James, and John go up to the mountain and they witnessed the transfigured body of our Lord in that whitest white glow that the human eye could contain. But not just that. They all of a sudden see two of the greatest heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah. You could imagine for these young Jewish men what an extraordinary sight that was. The thundering prophet Elijah who overcame the prophets of Baal. Or Moses the great deliverer. And our Lord himself. So beautifully transfigured. Peter comes down. And what does he write. In his letter. We are not. Following cunningly. Devised fables. But we were. Eyewitnesses to his majesty. And you would do well. To pay heed to this. As a light. In the dark place. And then he goes on to say this. But now. We have. The word of the prophets. Made most certain. And that's when he says. You would do well. To pay heed to this. As a light in a dark place. This is really that eternal light. That transfigured. Thrill. Of being. Of witnessing that was momentary but all of those have a shelf life all experiences have a shelf life it doesn't last you forever you always want another one to bring you up to date 
but the word of the Lord abides forever. So I'm going to read for you from the word and point you to a man who I think demonstrates for us how it is you follow God with a whole heart and be completely fulfilled in that walk. Ravi Zacharias, the final sermon that he preached entitled Marching to a Different Drummer. We'll take a brief time out, we'll get you updated on traffic, and return with more in this special tribute to the late Ravi Zacharias on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Today, a special tribute to a very special man, one of the leading Christian apologists of our life, Ravi Zacharias, who passed away at his home in Atlanta on May 19th. In his final sermon, he deals with issues that really go to the heart of the Christian faith and our relationship with Christ in his message entitled, Marching to a Different Drummer. Once again, here's Ravi Zacharias. I'm reading to you from Daniel chapter 2, and my message is entitled, Marching to a Different Drummer. And here's how it begins. I'm sorry, I'll I'll read to you actually from Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. There he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonian and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Notice now, please. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to define himself this way. Verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sounds like the earliest Babylonian law firm. These guys were actively involved now as captives, and they are being treated very differently to the rest of the captives because they are being programmed. They are being conditioned as the best and the cream of the crop to be used then 
to get the exiles to finally turn against the nation from whence they had come in order to become subjects to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a very smart man. Let me say something to you as gently as I can. The laws of moving the young from one country to another, getting them settled, teaching them the language, and reprogramming their minds in a different way of thinking has been a common practice in many, many a conquering, by many, many a conquering king. And that's exactly what is happening here. Get these boys softened up. Give them the best kind of food, banqueting at the king's table. And so we've got Nebuchadnezzar here, working his plan, his mystique, and his will. He's a demagogue. He's a leader. He wants to conquer the known world of his time. Very seldom does it really follow through and come to fruition because sooner or later, somebody stands against a demagogue like that. Percy Bysshe Shelley, writing years ago, says this, I met a traveler from an antique land who said to vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that the sculptor well those passions read, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, stamped on these lifeless things. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And you can go to the desert area someday. And as you're riding through on a horse or whatever, you'll see these broken statues with a frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command that tell the sculptor, well those passions read, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. One of the most memorable scenes in our lifetime would be the dictator of Libya, out on a lonely road somewhere, once upon a time dominating the masses and inflicting pain upon pain upon pain, till he himself was literally pleading like a king without a horse, asking somehow that he be treated with the respect that he ought to be treated, thought he, as a king and a ruler. That's the kind of man Nebuchadnezzar was. In fact, Saddam Hussein said he was patterning his leadership going back over these 2,500 years to bring back Babylon its glory days and lead once again. So he brought these boys in, training them in the literature, the language, and the philosophy of the Babylonians. Do you notice what he's doing? Language is indispensable to communication. The philosophy and the literature is indispensable to illustration. So the language enables you to bring the argument. The literature and the philosophy brings to you the story and the windows that open to let some kind of light in. And so what is really happening here is he is training and reconditioning them both with the power of reasoning and the power of story and illustration. 
That's why the famous political activist once said, let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. Let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. Because the truth of the matter is, through music, through story, through illustration, you can completely enter through the back door of imagination and even overcome the front door of reason. And that's precisely what's happening here. He's conditioning them in every way. And when you look at these men, it is amazing to see how it is that they responded. The first is this, because, you know, they're marching to a different drumbeat. They're marching to a different sound. They are listening to a different voice. These are the countercultural people who are learning how to respond to a culture that is against the grain and against the values of their belief. And may I suggest to you, if ever we are living immersed in a culture that is contrary to biblical values, that's contrary to biblical absolutes, this is the time we are living through right now. All definitions have gone. Think about it. All absolutes have gone. Relativism reigns supreme. And what relativism actually means is that it is only relative to you. It's not relative to anybody else. Justice was always intended for the other person's benefit as well. So all we hear is rights, rights, rights. Very seldom do you hear of what is right. If all we focus on is an individual right without thinking of what is absolutely right, you will end up in in a course where culture is in collision with itself because each person assigns to himself or herself the right that is self-reflective and self-propagating. What does Daniel do? What is the first thing he does? He drew the line of resistance by training his appetite. He drew the line of resistance by training his appetite. There was nothing wrong with him enjoying the meal at the king's table. It was a luxury. It was a beautiful privilege. I have a friend who loves to go to the big buffets and he says he gets it from the Bible because Paul says to buffet your body. (laughs) Always enjoying all of the varieties, all of the nice foods and so on. Well, you know, once in a way it's great to do that. But you do it as a habit. You do it as a constant desire then you find you really can't because you can't afford a new tailor every day to get the, all the expansion that is taking place within you. But more than that, it dulls your sensitivities. He drew the line of resistance in order to train his appetite. Ladies and gentlemen, appetites need to be trained. It doesn't happen overnight. How you react in life is a training of the will and a training of the mind. That's why Jesus says to let the eye be single because the eye is the lamp of the body and if the light within you becomes darkness, how great is the darkness indeed. Ravi Zacharias, the final sermon that he preached entitled Marching to a Different Drummer. 
We'll take a brief time out. We'll get you updated on traffic and return with more in this special tribute to the late Ravi Zacharias on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Today, a special tribute to a very special man, one of the leading Christian apologists of our life, Ravi Zacharias, who passed away at his home in Atlanta on May 19th. In his final sermon, he deals with issues that really go to the heart of the Christian faith and our relationship with Christ. In his message entitled, Marching to a Different Drummer. Once again, here's Ravi Zacharias. How you react in life is a training of the will and a training of the mind. That's why Jesus says to let the eye be single, because the eye is the lamp of the body, and if the light within you becomes darkness, how great is the darkness indeed. May I suggest to you, Almost every kind of sensual temptation starts with the eye. Starts with the eye gate. And that's why what did Satan do to our Lord himself? Showed him all the kingdoms of this world. That eye power. This is wow. This is beautiful. This is enchanting. I'll give you all of these things. If you will bow down and worship me. The amazing thing to me is that these young men with strong appetites and certainly a desire for the best of culinary options said we are not going to do this because if we do this we will get so softened up that ultimately we'll be drum marching to his tune and to his drum beat. We lose the purpose for which God has really placed us here. You know in any palace even if the monarch is not walking to the drumbeat of God, I found it amazing how many times God puts a person in that palace who's marching to a different drummer. You've got Joseph, you've got Nehemiah, and here you've got Daniel. They're listening to a different voice, marching to a different drumbeat. This idea of training the eye gate and training your will and training your appetite is a very hard thing to do. You know, I was in a country that I leave unnamed and I had just sought a meal to have all by myself. And as I sat down quietly all alone for the first time in about three days to have one meal just so I didn't have to use my voice and answer questions. I sat down and a guy was walking by my table and he kept looking at his cell phone and looking at me. I said, I know, what's, I know exactly what's happening here. <laughs> and you almost at that moment feel like this dinner is over, I'm heading back to my room. And then he comes and he kneels by my side and shows me my picture on his telephone. <laughs> he says, this you? I said, what do you think? He said, now that I've heard your voice, it is you. (laughs) I don't know this guy. I had no idea who he was. He told me which country he came from. He wasn't a citizen of the country where I was. And then he looked at me and he said, Mr. Zacharias, 
I listen to your podcasts. I listen to your messages. I really want to love the Lord. I want to serve him completely. But my enslavement to pornography is killing me. He was in his 20s. And I put my arm around him and started talking to him. And I thought to myself, you know what? I don't even know this guy. Just think how painful it must be what he is living through for him to come to a total stranger, at least in terms of a face-to-face encounter. And the uppermost burning question on his mind was, can you help me get rid of what I am addicted to? I take you back to some years ago where it was late at night and I had received a telephone call It's always wonderful to have my wife with me, by the way. We don't often travel together. Uh, They beg the grandchildren, have beaten me to the draw. They've always got a greater need than I have. And she'll tell you, for Ravi, his worldview changes after 9 p.m. I don't think anything good comes into my life after 9 p.m. So I'm in bed reading. I want to be horizontal by that point and probably just look at another dawn. I don't want to go into the lateness of the night. I'm an early riser. So anybody who phones me after nine o'clock, it's either an emergency or they've got the wrong number. So I picked it up and it wasn't the wrong number. It was somebody who knew me very well. He said, Rav, are you awake? I said, I am now. <laughs> he said, I've got a problem I want to talk to you about. He was a surgeon and he said, I've been doing surgery all night. And this woman was brought into surgery. She was so badly beaten. Every bone was broken, basically. The bigger ones were shattered. And when the paramedics wheeled her in, they said, Doc, she's gone. No point dealing with it. She's gone. But he said, I looked at that broken body and I said, there's no way this can happen. I had no idea what had gone on. So he told the team he was going to scrub and do whatever he could. He put his gloves on, everything. And he said, the only hope was to give her a direct heart massage and see if I could revive her. They tried everything else, pounding on the chest and all. So he cut the rib cage, put his hand directly into the chest cavity, took the heart in his hand and started to give it an actual direct heart massage. And it didn't work. He walked away from there and he said, whatever happened to her? Who did this to her? So he's washing his hands when the nurse comes and says, Doc, I think you better look at this. She brought a bag, emptied it out onto the table. She was a drug junkie. There all kinds of used needles in there. And as he was looking at all that stuff, he noticed in his haste to put his hand into the ribcage, he'd nicked his finger. And as he looked at that nicked finger, slightly bleeding, whatever, He said, I think I've made contact with diseased blood. I said, is it a deep cut? He said, no. It's a paper thin cut. I said, now you're telling me a paper thin cut could put you at risk to destroy your whole immune system if you've made contact with that kind of diseased blood. He said, doesn't take any more than that. A paper thin cut. Albeit at one point, even the gloved hand. And I remember when I finished talking to him and he said he'd gone and given some blood for a test and he said a complete 
A comprehensive answer can only come in a few days, but I'm just hoping that I've not destroyed my body tonight. And I put my head back on the pillow and I thought to myself, are there paper thin cuts to the soul? Can you make that little slight laceration that makes you vulnerable and exposed to something that can destroy your spiritual immune system? So especially to you young men, I say to you, what are you toying with? What do you hold in your hand? What do you see on your phone? What have you allowed the world to have access into your soul that gives those initial paper thin cuts that down the years can put your mar marriage and everything else at risk? So I had my arm around this young boy in his 20s from another country as his face was just covered with tears and people looking, saying, what is going on here? This guy is sitting here having his dinner. Another fellow comes and then he starts talking to him and now he's kneeling beside him and crying his heart out because he knew that he'd got some pretty deep wounds into himself. If that's your case, tonight should be the night you turn things around. That you make that commitment that you turn to God for healing. That you turn to God for strength and power as has been so beautifully sung in many of the songs. And I say to you, draw the line of resistance to train your appetite. Because whatever you feed into your imagination takes hold and wreaks havoc. And in the years to come, you find out it didn't happen overnight, but a little at a time, a little at a time, and a little at a time, and you lost your way. We travel all over the globe. One of my colleagues is here. We travel all over the globe and we listen to stories. And that's what we hear again and again and again. I made this choice. I went there. I did this. Ladies and gentlemen, March to the drumbeat of God. March to the drumbeat of God. Because his word, his word abides forever. And it is vital that you learn that the world will be there to always tempt and test. And God's will for you is always to know how to say no to the things that will lead you astray so that you don't have to look back and say, when did this all happen? Ravi Zacharias, the final sermon that he preached, entitled, Marching to a Different Drummer. We'll take a brief time out, we'll get you updated on traffic, and return with more in this special tribute to the late Ravi Zacharias on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Today, a special tribute to a very special man, one of the leading Christian apologists of our life, Ravi Zacharias, who passed away at his home in Atlanta on May 19th. In his final sermon, he deals with issues that really go to the heart of the Christian faith and our relationship with Christ in his message entitled, Marching to a Different Drummer. Once again, here's Ravi Zacharias. March to the drumbeat of God. 
because his word, his word abides forever. And it is vital that you learn that the world will be there to always tempt and test. And God's will for you is always to know how to say no to the things that will lead you astray so that you don't have to look back and say, when did this all happen? So he drew the line of resistance to train his appetite. But number two, he drew his line of dependence. He drew his line of dependence on going beyond knowledge to wisdom. He drew his line of dependence on going beyond knowledge to wisdom. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. And he had this dream of a massive statue with a head of gold, a chest of silver, a midsection of bronze, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And the stone cut out of no man's hand comes and knocks and breaks the statue to pieces. And he has this great dream repeatedly and he says, what on earth is happening? It was a culture within which dreams meant an awful lot and still do to this very day. And so he's having this dream Gold, silver, bronze, iron and, iron and clay that is right at the feet. And this stone cut out of no man's hand is knocking this huge statue down. And he wants to know what this dream means. And so he looks at all of his magicians and enchanters and says, you guys come and tell me what this dream actually means. And they said, we'll be happy to tell you if you tell us what the dream was. He says, uh-uh, you're not going to get away with that. If you are so smart, you tell me what the dream was. And then you tell me what the interpretation is. You know, I come from a culture where all kinds of magicians and all kinds of astrologers, all kinds of palmists do all kinds of things. And they come and tell you all these massive stories. My favorite one is when I was a young, uh, young guy growing up, my mother brought this fellow to read our palms. Now, palmist read, palm reading and astrology was an avocation. His actual vocation was selling saris. So he would come to the door, open up his trunk, and then he would offer to read our palms. So my mother sat all of us kids down one after another, told him to please predict our future after reading our palms. And he was giving all these glowing reports to my older brother and uh, with my brothers and sisters. And then he looked at my hand and he went like this. Ravi Baba, bahut kharab khabar hai. Those of you who speak Hindi, he says, Ravi, little boy, I've got very bad news for you. I said, what's that? He said, looking at your palm, you're not going to travel very much in life. I don't know what he's doing for a living now. <laughs> but I hope his sorry business is going well. Or else he's gone into weather reporting. Which is about the only thing you can keep doing and be dead wrong and still have an audience. You know. <laughs> so there he was. Palmistry and all this kind of stuff. That's what's happening here. You guys are enchanters. You're magicians. Tell me what my dream was. And the guy said, you know, this dictator is looking for a reason to kill us. He knows we are not going to be able to tell him the dream, but this is what he's trying to pick a fight with us. So the word comes to Daniel. What does Daniel do? He goes to God in prayer. He says, God, I need your wisdom. I don't know how to do this. There is no way I'm going to be able to tell him what his dream is, but I need your wisdom.
And he tells the steward, he says, look, I can't tell us tell this dream. I don't have the learning, but I need God's wisdom to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, how important it is to seek wisdom and to follow it. Seeking wisdom is just half of the battle. Following it is the very important part of that. Distinguishing where it is that God is really leading you. And as you seek that wisdom, I tell you how important it is in our time to have wisdom to know how to respond, what to say, what not to say. I find myself on a platform in many parts of the globe and asked a question. And halfway through the question, I know for sure there is no way I can answer that question without God's wisdom. There's no way I can answer that question without God's wisdom. So 90% of the time as the question is being asked, I am praying for divine wisdom. Do you need his wisdom today? you need that wisdom today, that wisdom to know what to do and how to do it. So critical. I want you tonight to just seek the mind of the Lord to reveal to you what he wants from you and the wisdom of what to do and what not to do. It is critical that you follow along in that. I remember some years ago being with the former Archbishop of Canterbury. And we were five of us on a peace mission talking to the leaders from both sides in Jerusalem, in in Israel. And we'd finished talking to many of them. And on the last day, we were talking to one of the guys who was a well-known terrorist. He had founded one of the leading terrorist organizations. So strong guy, spent many, many years in, in prison as well. And he was an angry man. He was flinched, fists clenched, and he was just shaking and talking. The room was full of tobacco smoke. And as he argued for his position and his view, I knew we were not going to get anywhere. Finally, the archbishop looked at the five of us guys and said, why don't you all ask him your question? I'll give you a chance to ask him one question apiece. So my turn came. And as a private meeting, so I won't tell you what question I asked, but I asked the question and I didn't like the answer. So I looked at him and I said, Sheikh, I really don't like your answer. I was already shivering in my shoes. I'm wondering if my grave was going to be in Ramallah by the next morning. <laughs> so I said to him, I don't like your answer, but I just want to say to you a couple of things. I said, Sheikh, not far from where you and I are sitting. 5,000 years ago, a man by the name of Abraham took his son up a hill in order to offer him as a sacrifice to God to demonstrate his faith. I said, do you remember that story? He said, yes. I said, please, Sheikh, let's not debate which son. But Abraham took his son up that mountain to offer him as a sacrifice to God. So that's right. I said, as the axe is about to come down, God stops that hand. He said, that's right. I said, what did God say? He just looked at me. I said, God said, stop. I myself will provide. He said, that's right. I said, Sheikh, very close to where you and I are sitting. 2,000 years ago, God kept that promise. 
I said God took his own son up another hill. And this time the axe did not stop. He just stared at me. I said, shake until you and I receive the son God has offered. We'll be offering our sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for position and power and land and prestige. He just stared at me. The archbishop said, I think it's time to go now. (laughs) So we're walking down the stairs and the archbishop put his arm around me and he said, you know, Ravi, that was of God. I said, I sure hope so. (laughs) So we went down. But the archbishop was the guest of honor, so the sheikh was ushering him to his car. And all of a sudden I heard running behind me and I turned around just in time to see it was the sheikh coming after me. You know, I have two titanium rods in my back, four clamps, eight screws bolting me down. And if that guy even were going to hug me, it'll be curtains. So he just turned me around and he said this to me. He said, Mrs. Zacharias, patted me on the face, kissed me on both sides of the face. He said, you're a good man. I hope I will see you again someday. Until we receive the son God has offered, we'll be offering our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for position and power and land and prestige. I didn't think that up, I want you to know. It just came at that moment where I just said, God, I don't know what question to ask him. Help me. And when he answered and I said, God, I don't like this answer. Help me. And in that moment, God gave me those words. You may be in a situation today where you need wisdom to say something right. Ravi Zacharias, the final sermon that he preached entitled Marching to a Different Drummer. We'll take a brief time out. We'll get you updated on traffic and return with more in this special tribute to the late Ravi Zacharias on this edition of Lifeline. <laughs> 